The year is 1964. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. Dave, the comic book expert, and alongside Zach, the comic book newbie, will cover all the essential Marvel stories from its origin to today. This episode will be covering the first part of 1964. So without further ado, Zach, do you want to take us into Tales of Suspense, number 50? Before that, I just want to mention the, the feedback and the response we've been getting from listeners and all our backers on the Slack channel has been really great, and we really appreciate uh, the way people have been responding to the show. So thanks. Yeah, we're excited to get this thing going. Again, like we'll we'll do this at the end of the episode, but if you want to get involved with the community in the Slack channel, just go on over to patreon.com slash my marvelous year and you can find some pretty cool like exclusive perks. And honestly, like it's we're already fostering a really a really interesting community and we're just getting started here. So I'm excited to see this thing take off and to see all the Marvel fans that are really, really excited to try and read, you know, as much as possible throughout Marvel history. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been fun. It's fun seeing the uh, the range of people. We've got like total newbies and people who have read like thousands of comics. So it's really fun seeing that mix of people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all right, let's get into it. Tales of Suspense, number 50, which is, of course, the home to Iron Man comics at this time. Uh, Tales of Suspense, number 50, starts out with a character named the Mandarin being visited by these Chinese government officials. And he's this... Uh, he's this Chinese villainous looking guy with, I don't even know how to describe what he's wearing. He's got this like purple head cap and purple goggles on. I think he looks, I think he looks pretty ridiculous. <laughs> he's, he's China's Dr. Doom is really the way he's. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely you know? just seems they're casting him as Asian Dr. Doom. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, his design is probably my least favorite in our all of marvel comics so far like i I don't know his design really does not do it for me (laughs) in all of marvel comics wow it's a bad hat it's a really bad hat i don't and then those those goggles are really silly i think i I, yeah i don't understand the practicality it kind of looks like a swim cap but with like the goggles (laughs) cut out to form an m you know because that's his emblem exactly uh it's not great he'll he'll look cooler uh, in the version okay. I'm more familiar with, like in the '90s, if his screen's not ever, if his skin's not green, I'm not that interested in the Mandarin. I gotta be honest. <laughs> okay, I I don't know what that means, but I guess we'll figure it out. Um, so this starts out with Chinese, like communist Chinese government officials. These military men are approaching the Mandarin's fort, castle, and they're they're going there to ask him for weapons to help the the war. And it's clear that like. Even the, the dreaded red communists are terrified of the Mandarin. You know, even these high-level military officers are terrified of this guy. And they go and he scares them off and he's not interested in, you know, helping the war effort. He's kind of just wants to amass power for himself. He's an external force, which I think is kind of interesting. So like you have, yeah. like Doom, we mentioned, you know, living in a castle, is the he is the government of Latveria, as we'll come to learn. And Mandarin is not necessarily representative of china right like right. it's where he is and he is working with the communists there who are 
you know, stock enemy number one at this point in time in world history. Um, but he clearly has his own motivations, which I think makes him kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so speaking of him not being representative of China, he is representative of this overall, uh, this idea that was pretty uh, insidious at the time and I, I think has definitely faded in our, our consciousness a little bit, that the yellow peril, right? And he he's yeah. definitely leaning into that. You know, they call him uh, an oriental menace. Uh, you know, they... <sighs> the the way that he is portrayed is just like you can you can hear the gongs ringing in the in, smell the incense burning right like <laughs> they just kind of lend him this air of like you know eastern mysticism it's stuff that like if your grandpa said like you'd be uncomfortable if not altogether like well that's not definitely racist <laughs> well but it makes me it makes my skin crawl a little like it's got a lot yeah, of yeah and you know what doing some research about this because you're right like it's they ha, they have <laughs> flirted with this kind of stuff before just in the the way they portray Vietnamese and Chinese soldiers because just kind of general anti-communist sentiment at the time but i think it's important to like note how bad anti-asian uh sentiment was in the culture at the time asians could not become naturalized citizens in the united states until like the mid 40s you couldn't move here and become a citizen uh, the quotas on people immigrating from Asian countries were super restrictive until like until after this, until 1965. There was this really like anti-Asian, um, anti-Asian policy in the government restricting um, the amount of Asians, not to mention, you know, Japanese internment camps and just the general like blanket of Orientalism that was generally cast over. I think Asian Americans. Actually, I was looking. The term Asian American wasn't really coined until like 1968, and was kind of like an academic term in order to like give all these disparate groups kind of an identity to rally under to to fight for some more equality and to try to get out from under the the term of like Orientalism. So yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's really good context to add, and I I think like it's a shadow that hangs over, frankly, anytime we go to Vietnam or yeah. China during this era. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that's the, a really good context for the shadow that sort of hangs over the Mandarin. Um, I, I will call out, like, just in regards to the issue here, one thing I did like in the very early going is you get the shot of Mandarin looming over Iron Man. And it's kind of just like he's been observing him as an enemy. It's a cool splash page drawn by Don Heck. Um, and it also, you kind of get Marvel feeling themselves a little bit. Like, you can tell the confidence creeping in where there's this line, don't read if you're in a hurry. It's like this opening page tease, and it's like, you know, it's like savor every word, savor every image. It's, <laughs> they do a lot of that. Those are funny, yeah. Yeah, they're they're enjoyable, but it's also like, like you know, they've just started. It's like, who are yeah. you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, with that, I'll talk. I'll just talk about the rest of the issue with the Mandarin. But uh, I'm actually curious, because unlike a lot of the kind of, like, sometimes they have these stereotypical portrayals early on, but they tend to fade. In Marvel Comics, you know, they, they move away from them. But to my understanding, Mandarin yeah. becomes, it or stays, like, one of the Iron Man's primary villains up till, I don't know, modern times. Uh, including being the villain of Iron Man 3, the movie, which I, I know that's kind of a contentious portrayal. Uh, well, you know, I mean, let, let's not spoil it. But I just, for my money, I think uh, I think that was a very good, like, way of dealing with the baggage of this character. Even if it does kind of yes. undercut the villainy of this character yeah i 
I like I yeah. like the twist in Iron Man three again. I won't spoil the the five year old movie for those who haven't seen it. Um, but basically, Mandarin he I mean he's Iron Man's arch enemy. It's you know no bones about it, and he stayed that way, you know up to present okay, day. Cool. So like there's you know even modern runs like they don't they don't really take off. They don't really it's not like things are getting serious really until Mandarin's involved, and then it's like oh this is a big story. Well, I'm interested to see how that how that develops. Anyway, in this issue, getting back to this issue. So it establishes Mandarin as this powerful threat in China. Cut back to cut back to the military talking to Tony Stark. I don't even know if they're talking to Tony Stark or Iron Man. I can't remember. <laughs> but the military He does have a secret identity here, which I uh, it's like awful. consistently perplexes me. <laughs> and it lasts forever. It lasts a very long time. Yeah, until like the nineties or something, right? It's really it's really a like it's hard to not judge it based on, you know, my perception of modern Iron Man. Of Like, Tony Stark is a public figure who's also Iron Man and everyone knows it. But, like, mm-hmm. he spends so much time saying, like, rationalizing why Iron Man is nearby. Like, oh, he's – everyone knows Tony Stark and Iron Man are friends. Like, and then, like, oh, Iron Man is my new bodyguard. So that's why he was here. And it, it always just, like, it wears thin really quick. And, and it kind of beggars belief. It it feels a little unbelievable that the people around him are just that stupid all the time. Unlike Spider-Man, who you kind of feel like gets away with it for the most part. Like this yeah. is just like it, it's pretty ridiculous. Anyway, the the US the US military is talking to Tony Stark about how they've become aware of the Mandarin, this powerful threat in China, and they need Iron Man to go investigate. They just need more information on the Mandarin. Uh, Iron Man flies to China and not flies like you think which would mean <laughs> on, you know, on jet boots or something. Because uh-huh. Iron Man is weirdly, like, underpowered still at this point. So they fly him in a plane, and then, like, he jumps out of the plane in his Iron Man suit over China, <laughs> which I think is, is very funny. Like, the, these ways that they still have not fully powered the heroes to their full degree. Yeah, I wrote down that, like, battery battery charging is a very serious concern <laughs> for yeah. Iron Man at this point in time. Like, he has he has very limited energy output, um, yeah, so something like, you know, just, oh, I'll up and fly to China. Like, that's not even on the radar yet. Yeah, and the battery charging is, like, also a little wonky because it's, like, it's not like he has to plug in. He just needs to stop moving for a few minutes to, like, recharge his transistors or something. So it's just often, like, he's trapped and he's... It, it, it feels like just plot contrivance because it's, like, oh, I can't break free of my bonds. My transistors are shot and undercharged. And then he breaks free and he's, like... All right, I had I had a few minutes to recharge my transistors. I'm at full power. It's an excellent design. Yeah. So at the behest of the military, he flies to China. He dro- he drops down and flies into Mandarin's castle, who immediately just, you know, like Iron Man drops in and he starts fighting, which I think is a kind of funny, unintentional, like, little view of American interventionalism. <laughs> like, the idea that the military just asked Iron Man, like, we don't know what this guy's deal is. We need you to find out. And then he just like burst into the castle and starts fighting him. <laughs> he, he's not actually a threat. He hasn't done anything specific yet. He, he's not threatening anyone. He's just in his castle, like cackling and wringing his hands. Yeah, it's definitely the sort of thing that Marvel will get a little bit smarter about. Yeah, where it's like, you know, Nick Fury running covert ops, maybe. Um, but here it's just like, it's like, man, like, if word gets out of this, like you just started a war, <laughs> like what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. It, well, and it's it's even like they really, yeah, yeah. They don't really give much reason. Anyway, so in this castle, Iron Man and the, the Mandarin immediately responds to Iron Man's presence with a bunch of traps, um, and then they start fighting. And Mandarin's main gimmick is that he's got these ten rings on his finger. He's got these big, colorful, golden rings, all different designs. 
and each one of them give him a different power. So, <laughs> well, purportedly each one give him a different power because it basically seems like he just has a bunch of, like, energy rays that <laughs> fire out of them. Uh, it does show that he's, like, everyone in the Marvel Universe at this time, a master of judo, and maybe the ring gives him a power to chop through, like, iron bars or something. So he he... he it shows that he can stand toe-to-toe with Iron Man in his suit, and he can fight, like, hand-to-hand. He does self-identify as the greatest karate master the world has ever known, <laughs> which I, yeah. I very much appreciate. Um, yeah, the Ten Rings gimmick is—I think it's pretty fun, as as bad guy gimmicks go. Um, I think the ring powers will get a little more defined, and, like, obviously we're going to talk about a few issues that he's in here— I, they get a little more inventive than just rays. Yeah, that's what I was. I'm I'm hoping for because it, it seems like a really cool idea, and then nothing. Th- there's nothing specifically interesting about it. Meanwhile, all throughout this, there is a subplot going on. They cut back occasionally to Pepper Potts and Happy Hogan, and I talked about them on extra issues, but we can cover it real quick. Pepper Potts is Tony Stark's new secretary, and Happy Hogan is his like assistant slash chauffeur slash kind of bodyguard and. What I like about them is that there's the, there's kind of a love triangle going on where both Happy Hogan and Tony Stark are in love with Pepper Potts. Pepper Potts is mostly just in love with Tony Stark, though it kind of hints that maybe she does have the occasional feeling for Happy Hogan. Happy Hogan's in love with her. But what I really like about it is the banter between Happy Hogan and Pepper Potts is like by far my favorite battle of the sexes banter happening in marvel right now yeah i like this i like this little soap opera kind of romance thing they have going on where i like the only reason tony can't be with pepper is because of his constant internal debates about you know basically like he's got his heart problems and he's iron man and how could he ever put that on a young beautiful girl like pepper and then happy meanwhile is just kind of like he's just oafish and he's just doing his best and pepper's constantly calling him on it but at the same time, like, he dotes on her. He clearly cares. Um, and Pepper, you know, basically will date him out of spite. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's that's basically the role he gets relegated to is, like, when Tony Stark makes her mad, she'll date Happy just to just to get under his skin. But yeah. but it's funny because, like, there's, there's very few other female characters who get this much kind of, like, I don't know, agency isn't quite the word. She gets but- to pick. She gets, she gets decisions to make. Yeah. Well, she gets decisions and she gets to like stand up against a guy who's like <laughs> under her skin. And she'll stick it to Tony too. Yeah. She'll, yeah exactly. You know, when he, when he sort of gets on her bad side, she'll be like, yeah, I'm going out with happy. In your yeah. Face. But it, and it's, it's genuinely funny. So, like I, I wrote down here, uh, there's one point happy is joking and says something like, well, I'm just playing hard to get. And she like snaps back. You're about as hard to get as the common cold. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's good. It's good patter. So Tales of Suspense 50 ends with Iron Man defeating Mandarin through a pretty ridiculous means. He's just like, <laughs> the Mandarin's uh, karate chop is like looming, coming down on him. And Iron Man pulls out, literally pulls out like a wrist calculator <laughs> to to calculate the angle at which the Mandarin's blow is going to strike him at. And him yeah. pulling out the calculator causes the Mandarin to hesitate for a second, giving him time to finish his calculation the karate chop comes and he like angles his armor just such a way that he deflects the blow and Mandarin is <laughs> knocked unconscious and Iron Man just runs, leaving him like unconscious in his castle and basically accomplishing nothing. <laughs> he just showed right. up, flew into his house, knocked him unconscious and then went back to America. <laughs> and then literally booked it <laughs> out of the castle. He just runs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he actually he says like, oh, I'd love to stay and deal with him further. 
but my plane's going to leave without me. <laughs> it is like, what was the intent? I guess it's reconnaissance. Yeah, yeah, kind of. So that's going to bring us to Tales of Suspense number 54. So we're going to skip ahead a few issues here uh, to continue with the saga of Iron Man and the Mandarin. And this is the Mandarin's Revenge. And this is a story by Stanley Don Heck and Art Semek on letters. And basically what happens in the early going is Iron Man gets a call to track down Tony Stark. Again, as we outlined, you know, he is the bodyguard of Stark at this time. And he travels by roller wheels because transistor power runs low. So <sighs> there are, again, like battery is a real concern for Mr. Mr. Stark in his Iron Man armor at this point. It's not the first time he's used roller skates. It's just, I, part of me wonders, like, are they just like, what do teens love? Oh, teens love to roller skate. We better uh-huh. throw it on our, you know, our favorite hero. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty ridiculous and pretty funny. Um, so the Pentagon calls on Tony because basically there are some stolen missiles and the government is looking to find these missiles. Mm-hmm. Tony deduces that the Mandarin must be responsible based on the location of the stolen missiles. And he rides up to Castle Mandarin yet again and they fight. <laughs> so once again, <laughs> Tony has traveled to the Mandarin's castle. He enters and he's basically attacking a, a private citizen in his home. <laughs> so, yeah, again, I, in this case, the Mandarin has actually done something. Uh, yeah, that's true. He has he has done something this time. I think it's important to point out that um, he approaches and gets kidnapped by the Mandarin as Tony Stark. And then he mm. breaks out as Iron Man. Because that, that does come up later. So basically, <laughs> the Mandarin thinks that he has both Iron Man and Tony Stark captured at the same time. Right. He thinks they're both in the castle, not realizing they are one and the same, um, which is good. There's a detail where the Mandarin is watching Tony Stark like through his security cameras and, and calls him the Occidental, <laughs> which I liked as a little detail, you know, like Orient, East, Occident, West. Yeah, you don't hear the flip side very often. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is that is a good call out. But yeah, I mean, honestly, like this is it's basically like fifteen pages of an action showcase, um, showing off what Iron Man and the Mandarin can do. Uh, again, I think much like fifty. I mean, the Mandarin is mostly in control of these fights. Mm-hmm. Like I, I would say he really overpowers and and really displays like mastery over Iron Man in almost every way. Um, he does some cool things here. Like at one point he picks up a sword and reveals that he's a master of sword play and begins attacking <laughs> Iron Man with the sword, which you would think like of all the weapons that Iron Man might be a little less afraid of a sword might be among them, but he dives out of the way. Like he's absolutely terrified of this, this sword. <laughs> so clearly not the case. Um, Mandarin does use his rings here in some interesting ways. The one I particularly like is the darkness ring. So he basically, uses a ring to black out all the light in the room. Tony has no idea where he is. And then while he's, you know, completely unsure of his senses, uh, Mandarin basically uh, ropes him with these really, really strong coils. And, you know, once again, as we sort of approach the last page of the comic, um, he's got Iron Man trapped. And that's going to, you know, he's he's got him right where he wants him in his castle. And Tony's kind of final thoughts are, you know, of Pepper and Happy. And thinking he'll never see them again. So that's where Tales of Suspense 55 picks up. Iron Man is trapped by these, like, metal wires. And the Mandarin is, you know, getting ready to finish him off. But Iron Man, <laughs> Iron Man reminds him that Tony Stark is still in the castle somewhere. And Mandarin goes, oh, well, you're at my whim. I'll go take care of Stark and I'll come back to finish you off. The Mandarin runs off. Iron Man 
that gives Iron Man a few minutes to recharge his transistors and bust free of his bonds. I do like that while Tony is trapped here, we do get a cutaway basically back to Stark Munitions Factory mm-hmm. um, to see Happy and Pepper kind of running things. And I kind of like you were saying with Happy being, you know, kind of this befuddled, um, you know, kind of like humorous character. Mm-hmm. I, I really like him trying to run the factory. And basically it's like he has no idea what he's doing. Stark put him in charge. We don't really get why aside from he trusts Happy. You know, it's like surely they have VPs. <laughs> of this giant organization who'd be better at running these things. But I, I do appreciate the hijinks that ensue. I really like a line here where somebody, Happy says to someone who reports a problem, he says, well, didn't you do what I told you to do? And they said, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so they followed his orders and had a disaster as a result. It, it's pretty fun stuff. Yeah, it's good. Uh, so back at the Mandarin's castle, the Mandarin is... Uh, is trying to find Tony Stark in the castle somewhere. He He's walking around his castle, and Iron Man is sneaking behind him, just following him. He follows Mandarin to this control room, where he sees how the Mandarin has been stealing all these missiles from the government. And it's basically a giant, like, magnetic ray that just snatches the missiles out of the air and brings them to the Mandarin. I, I like a line here where Iron Man is observing this machinery and he sees how it works and <laughs> i don't know if he says it or thinks it to himself but he goes that's how you do it with a ray <laughs> <laughs> good deduction skills it's yeah. it's very similar to the plot we saw with like magneto i think too like an uncanny x-men number one yeah basically i think the threat of stealing missiles out of the sky is very prevalent yeah that probably has something to do with the the generalized fear of <laughs> like nuclear missiles at the time mm-hmm. yeah sure they start fighting again uh it is it's fine it this action was not particularly interesting to me any of these iron man mandarin fights i don't think there's one moment that i like where yeah. mandarin appears giant size oh yeah iron oh man. yeah yeah that, that was kind of funny yeah which is kind of like an ill-defined power of the mandarins i'm not sure I'm not sure he'll do this again yeah um, maybe, maybe i just didn't respond to that because it just did feel like they were and that right after he grows giant, he uh, he creates like a dozen of himself and you don't know which one's the real one. And it just yeah. kind of felt like he doesn't have anything specific he does. He's just kind of like, at, at one point, he's a judo master. Another point, he's Mysterio. And like, he, he just right. has this kind of whatever they feel like doing in the moment is what he can do. Yeah. Yeah. It's really going all over the map here um, in a way that, yeah, I think it, it is a little uh, off-putting in that he's not particularly well-defined. Yeah. Eventually, Iron Man destroys his missile-grabbing rays, and he flees, leaving the Mandarin angrier than ever at <laughs> at Iron Man. And that that's that's basically the end of the issue. You, the This issue ends with a few pages of some listener mail and some questions where they answer them with drawings. So there's a question of, like, how does Iron Man get dressed? <laughs> and they give you, like, a three-page spread showing you step-by-step step the way that Tony Tony Stark gets into his Iron Man costume. And one thing I'd call out here, just with, like, the Iron Man armor, is it's very compartmentalized yeah. at this point. Like, each piece is kind of its own unit. You know, like, he puts on the chest plates. It's, it's like a knight's armor, yeah. I guess, as yeah. opposed to, like, kind of what we've seen in the MCU more recently, where it's, like, these all these machines sort of putting him into the full suit or the the thing launching out of, you know, nanotechnology out of his briefcase or whatever. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're way away from that. It's just like flexible knight's armor. Yeah. It's like a couple gloves, a couple boots that, you know, extend over his limbs, chest plates, helmet. I like, he shows that he keeps it hidden in a briefcase. <laughs> he shows something like, and he keeps a dress shirt 
in there too, just to hide the armor. <laughs> like, yeah, right. That, that, that is his, his security for keeping an Iron Man suit secret is he just keeps a dress shirt on top of it. Yeah, airport security was pretty different yeah. in, uh, in 1964, <laughs> it turns out. Yep. But that's going to bring us to, yet again, another Tales of Suspense issue. There's a lot of big happenings here. The reason we, we tackle all those is, of course, because the Mandarin is really, he kind of goes on to become... Iron Man's arch enemy, mm-hmm. so it was an important character in the Marvel Universe. Tales of Suspense, number 57, I think, is more immediately clear why we're reading this one. And mm-hmm. it's it's two twofold. One, it's the introduction and origin of Hawkeye, the marksman. And two, it's the first issue that we're going to read in the core reading that includes the Black Widow. Now, she has actually been introduced, I want to say it's in Tales of Suspense 52, I think is technically her origin. Yeah. Um, so you can go back and read that if you want to see like officially her first debut. I think this story makes it pretty clear kind of the role she's going to play. Yeah, I looked at that. It wasn't it wasn't particularly like noteworthy, her first issue. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, you, you don't get the feeling that they were like planning on making her a character at that point. So yeah, she's kind of a stock, you know, communist spy. Just Russian agent. Yeah. Yeah. So 57 uh, begins with. The cover teases, you know, Hawkeye and Black Widow teaming up. We've got a story by Stan Lee, Don Heck, and Sam Rosen. I don't know if it's the cover of the splash page, but it has like six different action poses of Hawkeye on it. Yeah. And I think the caption says something like, can you tell we like this guy? Like, <laughs> It's very true. And I think like they they show him off in a way that they don't necessarily show off other character debuts. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll talk about some of it, but they... They seem very convinced Hawkeye is going to be a thing. And I think rightfully so. <laughs> and they're still <laughs> they're... trying to sell him on us today. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So one thing right up front that we get is, and we kind of talked about it, but romance is such a big part of this ongoing at this point. Yeah. So Tony's kind of trying to set up Happy and Pepper, and he accidentally asked Pepper out himself. Yeah, he's like, I have to I have to talk to Pepper about, about Happy. Maybe she'd want to go out on a date with him. And Pepper... I need to talk to you about dating. And she's like, I thought you'd never ask. And he was like, oh, no. Well, I guess I'm stuck going on a date. You can't. <laughs> Once you say that one sentence, you can't say any more. <laughs> right. Much to happy chagrin. Yeah. yeah while, while happy oh, <laughs> watches from the background. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So Tony takes Pepper to the fair. Yep. Uh, out on a date. And when they're there, they see uh, one of the attractions is Hawkeye the Marksman mm-hmm. shooting targets with a bow and arrow. Yep. And even even his first appearance here, he's ragged on um, by, like, hecklers in the crowd. One gentleman yells, <laughs> you know, basically, like, what is this? Bring out the dancing girls. <laughs> so, like, already people are like, bow and arrow, what is this? So while, while you know, they're watching this attraction, all of a sudden a Ferris wheel begins collapsing at the fairgrounds, and Tony bails with some excuse on Pepper to go save the collapsing Ferris wheel as Iron Man. Now, Hawkeye witnesses this, and he gets inspiration, essentially. And, and he's, he's jealous, right? He's clearly envious that Iron Man gets all the thunder here. <laughs> I wrote, it's great the first time we see him, he's feeling jealous and pouty. <laughs> yes. like, I feel like just a, a, a feeling of inferiority, like, shadows Hawkeye, I don't know for how long, at least like a couple decades and to, to my knowledge so like I, I think it's very funny literally it's it's the first panel with text he is like sitting there stewing about how iron man is <laughs> more of a hero than he is right absolutely and it inspires him to craft his own gear yep so he says you know basically well if i had a silly costume and went out and stopped crime then people would you know they would cheer about me the same way so he makes his costumes 
Um, there's a whole, again, like Marvel and again, like Lee and Heck here, they're really showing off like, here's the cool new costume and here's him putting it all together and here's all the things he can do with his arrow and trying to get like listener feedback. Like they're clearly like, ooh, could this be the next big thing? They're very, very obviously in expansion mode in a way that yeah. I, I don't feel like it doesn't come off as tra- as transparent so so frequently. What do you think about this costume? Oh, I love Hawkeye's costume. Really? I I'm head over. So here it's a little more like gladiatorial. Yeah, that's definitely what it looks like. He looks like a little medieval knight. Yeah. So I don't like the body armor. Yeah. Um, I love the hat. I okay. love the purple. Any purple headgear that Hawkeye <laughs> wears will absolutely satisfy me. I mean, <laughs> that's a way. Of, that's a way of putting it. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I know what I said, and I don't. Think <laughs> I I'm on board with you. You said something about how you know Jack Kirby headgear. Uh, is one of his superpowers and, and i yeah. totally agree like anytime he creates um i don't know his costume design is generally really good unlike his monster design but uh i don't know hawkeye's costume just like it'll get smoothed out a little bit i think just like iron man like it gets it, better yeah. it definitely gets better i yeah. this is the well no like you know I, I, less I perfect version in my in my book it gets better i like his purple out, outfit um, okay <laughs> once he kind of gets to the avenger stage things so he makes his costume. Yeah. Sp- speaking of costumes, can we talk about Iron Man's for just a second? I think this is yeah, yeah. as good a time as any to mention that his costume continually is getting updated throughout these pages. I think it was Tales of Suspense fifty five. They like hinted on the cover that he's got a new a, a new outfit and his armor is updated. And and I feel like his armor gets like very regularly updated. Unlike a lot of other heroes' costumes, like they just keep slowly pushing that boulder closer and closer to what he looks like today. It is one of the it is one of the costume sets that makes the most sense to be, to be in flux because oh, yeah, he's an sure. inventor. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So it's like you could roll a new, out a new one every issue and have some rationale. And, and why, I, I think you know. his costume actually looks pretty good at this point, with the exception of, did you notice that he has like nipple markings on the chest plate now? <laughs> are you going to go look? How else would you know where his nipples are? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> no, it's not like he has metal nipples. He just has like etched into the metal on his chest plate are just circles where his nipples would be <laughs> yeah yeah right right uh on the side of that big um big old yellow like heart piece yeah. i you know i hadn't noticed that uh but a lot people make a big deal about the bat nipples in the 90s movies um i feel like avengers endgame coming up here throw, throw some nipples on that armor <laughs> let's get this thing going that would be the, the big the big twist that the, the big reveal for that movie <laughs> Yeah. That's how they save the save the day. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry. Sorry to derail us. No. No. That's a good call. Um, okay. So Hawkeye with his costume, he goes out and he stops a robbery. He finds guys robbing a bank, and he stops them. And then basically they run away, and he goes to pick up what they dropped, which turns out to be a bag of jewelry. Right as the police show up, and he is you know effectively framed for robbing the store himself. So rather than like hang around and explain, he books it thinking he's been, you know, going to get arrested. And as he's running away, who should drive by but Black Widow, mm-hmm. who just happens to be there with a getaway car. <laughs> yeah, right. So Hawkeye pretty much immediately falls head over heels for Black Widow, as as men are wont to do. And, um, you know, and we should call out here, Black Widow is still in the thrall of her communist masters here. Like, there is yep. no ambiguity about whether or not she is a hero or a villain, frankly. Um, right. She is pretty clearly characterized as villainous so hawkeye uh he you know basically as he's getting away with black widow i think iron man just happens to fly over them black widow puts hawkeye up to it 
basically by just saying she needs like Iron Man taken care of. Like, uh, okay. Th- there's really not much more to it. It's very weirdly villainous for yeah. Hawkeye because Hawkeye is fully prepared to murder a man for no good reason. She doesn't give him any particular reason for <laughs> for this. Yeah. He's just fully prepared to murder someone so that he can get laid by this strange woman. The things the things we do for love, right? She just basically like bats her eyes at him and says like, "Take care of that guy." finish him off and he's like yeah all right i guess so you're pretty <laughs> right it's quite the turn yeah for hawkeye yeah um so he gets into a fight with iron man and he rust arrows uh tony's armor yeah. which i like a lot so you know hawkeye he doesn't just have a bow and arrow he's got all sorts of trick arrows mm-hmm. with chemicals and explosives and again like the the main one they uses here is he forces tony to shed his armor in parts. You know, we mentioned how it's kind of modular. Yeah. And Tony has to take it off because it's all rusty and he can't move. So Tony uh, tracks down, get away. Like Hawkeye basically bails after this. He tracks down the Hawkeye and, uh, and Hawkeye, when he rusts Tony's armor, I should mention, he steals one Iron Man's boots. <laughs> <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Which I quite like just as like a prank, but it's also intentional because basically they're like, Ooh, if I have his designs, we can sort of reverse engineer this armor and it's very early sort of like armor wars in the sense of like bad guys know how to make the Iron Man armor. That's a problem. Hmm. So when Tony tracks down Hawkeye, they get into another fight. He knocks Clint unconscious yeah. and unconscious here in big old air quotes because Clint from the ground sees Iron Man thinking he's won and pretends to be out. And then he fires one last bomb arrow at Iron Man, you know, his ultra explosive one. Don right. Peck does a nice Jack Kirby impression here with some circuitry showing the explosive in the tip of the arrow. And uh, Iron Man's armor deflects the bomb arrow because that's what he does. Yeah. He's wearing armor. And it hurts Black Widow instead. Yep. And here Clint has kind of a revelation. Uh, he professes his love for Black Widow and he rescues her and they kind of get away and he goes to save her and Iron Man is kind of left to... Uh, really just kind of pick up the pieces of this strange encounter. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's very weird for him. Is this the issue that ends with Tony Stark walking down the beach, like, sad? <laughs> yes. Yeah, the final panel is him just kind of morosely walking down the beach, which which sums up, in a lot of ways, the like how this Tales of Suspense kind of feels. Yeah, it's, it's it feels kind of strange. I mean, this is with knowledge of what Tony Stark is later, but it's definitely, like, the, the caption says, like, is there a sadder, more sympathetic hero? A man destined to be alone by shrapnel in his heart and like <laughs> forever forever attacked by villains he doesn't understand. Like they, they frame him as, I mean, kind of like Spider-Man, right? Like Spider-Man kind of has that, you know, he has herodom thrust upon him without asking. And it, I feel like it doesn't work as well for Tony Stark. <laughs> no. <laughs> that idea. I do think it's part of the reason I like these tales of suspense issues Yeah, so much. Um is because Tony, he definitely connects to the, yeah, the Peter Parker design mm-hmm. in a way that, like, I don't know, like Thor doesn't have yeah that sort of, like, sad sack, you know, side to him. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony does, but it's also like, but he's got everything, man. Yeah. You know, it's like he's got everything and he still feels that way. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, like, basically, like, I mean, it's also most of his, like, sadness is, self-inflicted it's basically like him keeping himself at arm's length from pepper because he's got a faulty heart maybe so yeah yeah i don't know the, these tales to suspense tales of suspense issues they weren't my favorite they i mean i'm, I'm glad we read them they were interesting 
interesting introductions to these characters, but uh, I don't think I, I like them quite as much as you did. Yeah, it's definitely uh, the little, little haze of nostalgia for me because they are some of the earlier 60s comics that I've ever read Yeah, yeah um, I can, I can as I was that. getting into comic books. So uh, next up, we read Avengers number four. This one, it's a pretty big, pretty big issue. This one picks up right after number three, where I guess the Hulk has left the Avengers. Uh, I didn't last long. I mean, no. <laughs> starts in issue one as a founding member of the Avengers and then immediately leaves, which is funny. Like, I've read later Avengers where they talk about the Hulk and they they like talk about him multiple times as a founding member of the Avengers who stuck around for literally one issue. <laughs> It never feels like he should get founding Avenger status yeah, to me. Yeah, because it's you know, like as, as they, much as they he does. fought him to a standstill in number one. He joined at the end. And then I think by the end of number two or the beginning of number three, he was already off, like, fighting them again. So Yeah, yeah. So I guess number three had a fight with the Hulk and Namor. And number three starts with Namor fleeing back in the ocean uh, after this fight and looking for his people. There's a note saying that this is before namor has been reunited with the atlanteans as we saw in fantastic four annual number one so he's searching all over the ocean for the atlanteans he's up in the arctic and he finds a tribe of inuits worshiping this huge hunk of ice with a shadowy figure inside they're like worshiping it as a as an idol and (laughs) namor is just like he's in a he's in a bad mood so he just bursts out of the water and just starts, like, scaring these Inuits, like, <laughs> starts scattering them. He he chops their block of ice out of the ground and just throws it into the ocean and starts, like, yelling at them. <laughs> and then a minute later, he, like, chastised himself, like, ah, what have you become? Just scaring the natives, like, <laughs> there's no there's no dignity in this. You know, I, d- I do like that he feels remorse there. Yeah, because <laughs> there's no reason. To, he, he's not mad at them. No. Yep. So he throws this chunk of ice into the ocean. It gets picked up into the Gulf Gulf Stream, and as the water gets warmer, it starts to melt, uh, revealing a man inside. Yep. The Avengers are in their undersea vessel, which I don't know if that existed up until now. <laughs> like, it, this felt like a little a little too convenient. But so I think I think this is them returning from the events of Avengers number three. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Is it convenient? Yes, <laughs> I will agree. <laughs> Cap, so it's Captain America is is the man who is who is thawed out from this giant ice cube, and the Avengers just happen to be passing by in their submarine. They they scoop him up and bring him on board. Captain America. They they realize that uh, as he's warming up, he he is waking up. He wakes up screaming about. Uh, actually, I I really like this moment. He wakes up screaming about screaming to Bucky Barnes to look out. Yeah. Right? Like, he's still reliving the his last moment before he was frozen, apparently. I don't, I don't know if that's the case, but he is, like, he's reliving a moment where he was telling Bucky to watch out. Yeah, and I actually really like how they, how they deal with Cap's, like, return. Like, he's not, he's just not, it's not like he comes out of the ice comfortable. And it's not like yeah. he comes out of the ice unscarred. You know, like, there's a lot of psychological trauma that he has to deal with, especially over the loss of his partner. Which, oh my god! You know, I mean, reveal. literally every time Captain America makes an appearance anywhere in any of these issues this year or into the next year, he he has to bring up Bucky at least once. Like it is 
the thing that defines him at the moment is that he is constantly moping around about the loss of his teenage sidekick, Bucky Barnes, in World War II. Yeah, and I mean, it's you know, we are 23 years removed from his debut Yeah, in 1941, so it's not like, you know, there are readers, certainly, who would not have been alive when Captain America was first coming out yeah. in World War II. Yeah, no, no, it definitely drives the point home. Yeah. So the Avengers, he, he sits up, you know, he doesn't know who all these people are. Uh, the Avengers are wary that he might be the real Captain America. And he's like, well, let me prove it. And then he just starts beating on them. <laughs> so <laughs> they all get into a fight and he's, you know, Captain America, he's agile, he fights with his shields, whatever. And they're like, well, I guess that's true. You have to be Captain America. No one else can fight like that. D- despite yeah. the fact that we just had an issue where somebody else dressed as Captain America <laughs> and fought really well. Clearly they hadn't read Strange Tales uh, 114. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, Let's see. Captain America tells the story about how Bucky died. Oh, wait. Which... I'm sorry. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry to cut you off. But no, no, I, I did want to call out that the way they stop Cap, finally, yeah. is not through any of the Avengers actually beating him in combat. They all lose, except for the Wasp, who stops him through her girlness. He literally he literally says, a girl? Oh, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> he won't fight a girl. So that's how they stop him. Oh, boy. Okay. So after that, Captain America tells the tale of Bucky's death. So there's a page spread, basically, of Cap and Bucky trying to stop this runaway plane. Um, It's kind of the origin that we're all likely very familiar with at this point in time. But, you know, the last image that we see is Bucky hanging onto the plane for dear life and Cap falling into the water, you know, screaming his name. That Bucky's trapped on this plane with a bomb, basically. Yeah, and Bucky's doing this intentionally to stop uh, the Nazis from stealing... They're like war technology and the Americans, the Americans plane. And those, and those details will get filled in um, yeah. over time, certainly, as we add in, you know, some elements. I think they show that there's some like shadowy figure nearby. <laughs> like, yes, which is it's kind of fun. Like, I think I think I actually know who that is, but I feel like they didn't at the time and they just left themselves like it's just a silhouette. So, yeah, it's a, it's a blank slate. Right. Which is, I think, smart of them. Right. Because like. Maybe they don't know who they want to put in there, but they're they're leaving themselves the, you know, the, the callback for that. Yeah. So uh, he tells them this story. The Avengers sub gets back to New York City and it rises up by the docks. All the Avengers, all the Avengers except Captain America, leave the submarine and head out onto the dock. And there's this like flash of light and they all turn into stone. Uh, unexplained. Captain America leaves the submarine and walks up to all these statues. There's like a crowd of people and there's these statues here. And he just says like, oh, well, I guess they built statues to honor the Avengers. I yeah. wonder where. Also, I wonder where they went. Oh, well. <laughs> it is weird how the press, too, just accepts like, oh, man, they faked us out with statues. Let's go find them. <laughs> like- <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So Captain America wanders off. Someone points him in the direction of a hotel where he can like relax. He gets to a hotel and Rick Jones, Bruce Banner's teenage sidekick and leader of the Teen Brigade, finds him. I'm not quite sure how this happens, how Rick Jones finds him, but I don't think it matters. Rick Jones finds Captain America in his hotel room, and while he's sleeping, he, he comes into his room, and as Captain America wakes up, he kind of freaks out because he thinks he thinks it's Bucky Barnes, and then he wakes up, and he just continually tells Rick Jones, like, no, you look just like him. No, really, you look just like him. Like... <laughs> Just 
like obsessing over this teenage boy. Uh, <laughs> it's somewhere between creepy and sad. You know, yeah, it's no, a, it does. It's I, a lot like an old man with like Alzheimer's, you know, like calling you the wrong name or something. Yeah, and sure. Just, like and, insisting. And Rick is, I think, appropriately uh, weary of this because he's like, this is real weird, man. It, it's sad for Captain America and it's weird for Rick Jones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. But anyway, Rick Jones shows up to tell Captain America that the Avengers are missing. They follow a bunch of clues that are particularly that don't particularly make sense and aren't noteworthy to find to find the man who turned the Avengers into stone. Yes. He goes into Captain America goes into this warehouse, he fights a bunch of like these, you know, thugs, and eventually he gets the man who had zapped the Avengers and turned them into stone, and he pulls a mask off the, this man, revealing like an alien who looks like he's this green broccoli looking alien with long green strands of hair he looks really dumb it's a weird turn and not a good design not not one of kirby's finest this alien explains that he crash landed on earth in the ocean his his ship is stuck at the bottom of the ocean but when he came out and uh, was startled by some people he used his ray gun to turn them into stone and because he has this like long green hair he i don't even know how to say the 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 myth around him (laughs) of this like creature who turns people into stone uh became the myth of the medusa in greek mythology so like it's just basically this weird broccoli man going around like zapping people with a stone gun it makes me think that lee and kirby were not particularly familiar with with greek mythology around medusa because (laughs) i've rarely read that and thought oh yeah broccoli (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So anyway, he he says that the reason he turned the Avengers into stone was that Namor the Submariner had made a deal with him that if he stoned the Avengers, Namor would free his his spaceship from the seabed. Basically, he makes the same deal with Captain America. If he unstones the Avengers, they will pull his ship out of the water. He does so, and then Thor uses his hammer, which somehow can have magnets, I guess. Uh, to like magnetize his ship out of the ocean hammers have magnets zach it's a thing yeah yeah i know <laughs> yeah so <laughs> we will call out uh just with name more quick that he self self uh um identifies as still the most powerful mutant on earth yeah that's an interesting like probably accidental like foreshadowing maybe i mean they're kind of using it because he's half human half atlantean yeah um yeah, yeah. but but right like that has become a bigger thing certainly in namor's um you know 2000s comics yeah uh so i think it's worth you know calling out like they're they're calling him a mutant as far back as 64 so uh so yeah that that's avengers number four it is avengers is not my favorite by <laughs> by a long shot of the marvel comics at this time like i think some of these heroes individually, actually, mo- all these heroes individually are more interesting. Like the team dynamic is not particularly great. The like team fights don't always work for me. The stories are a little scattered. Yeah, like I, I, I'm, I'll be curious to see when the Avengers like gets it together because for me right now, like these, these, yeah, these aren't particularly fun. Yeah, I, you know, it's an interesting call out, and I don't want to get too revealing, but I've. Avengers comics aren't great <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's interesting how big they've become. But I I don't know. It's, it's kind of a different conversation just about like, it's amazing the Avengers have become the biggest pop culture franchise in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because I 
don't think their stories here are always the best. Now, that said, we're going to get to one I really like uh, in the second half of 64. So there's good stuff in there. But a lot of times, you know, like this one really is, it's a Captain America showcase, and it's about bringing him back. Yeah. And uh, better stories will come out of that by virtue of Cap now getting his own mag. Right. Yep. Cool, cool. So that is going to take us into another um, team introduction of sorts in Uncanny X-Men number four. So this is the... Uh, sixth story that we'll be talking about today. It is announced as Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Now, I know we and a lot of Marvel fans, including some of those in the Slack, have joked about what a what a ridiculous thing to call yourself as sort of the the freedom fighters of mutanthood to identify as evil mutants. Right, um, yeah. It's kind of great. I know it's kind of retroactively been like, sort of ironic or sort of like taking taking the um the misunderstandings of the public and sort of wielding it against them yeah I think like there are some interesting like some modern writers i i found like on the wikipedia page uh, a little bit about how some modern writers have taken that and like tried to rationalize it in some like kind of interesting ways like uh you know that magneto purposely chose that to have to to force charles xavier to be quote unquote the good mutants right like yeah to, to kind of force him into this like moral stance <laughs> uh to 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 point out his hypocrisy or something but at this point magneto definitely is just like yes of course i'm evil haha well and i kind of like that honestly like i kind of like <laughs> okay. just embracing it it's a little you know like in the justice league around i guess actually not even at this time but you got like the legion of doom you know yeah. i kind of like them just being like yeah we're the bad guys we know yeah we're, yeah, we're embracing okay. it <laughs> so it opens with an extended danger room session in which we get kind of, you know, the the classic glimpse of the original X-Men powers. Just as a reminder at this point, the X-Men are are composed of Professor Charles Xavier as the leader. You have Jean Grey, aka Marvel Girl, Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, and Angel is the core five. And we find that this is the one year anniversary of class starting um, and Professor X gets the team a cake. To show that he is a, in addition to a taskmaster, a caring headmaster. And Cyclops, um, Cyclops cuts up the cake using his eye beams. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Sur- it's, really, it's a nice little like gratuitous use of power. I, I do enjoy that one. He does that, but also Jean Grey calls him out on how like silly it is. She says like, it's like using an elephant gun to kill a housefly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a nice little dynamic there for sure. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that we've we're on the fourth issue introduction here and Mm -hmm. stan and jack are telling us it's been a year in marvel time yeah just wait till number seven like how rushed they're they're doing things yeah it's a lot of i think there are some people in the slack even talking about this but like trying to figure out marvel time is is very very hard even for someone as obsessed with continuity as myself like that is actually figuring out like timelines is like um it's like quantum physics to me yeah like it's like the amount of math and thinking that has to go into that but you get a pretty good hint right here um at least in uncanny x-men number four so as the team kind of celebrates we get a turn to the brotherhood of evil mutants all sitting around a dining room table so this is one of those cool things that happens when you read marvel when you use marvel unlimited and use the panel by panel view is you see like some pretty interesting to kind of use like movie terms which is how i talk about comics a lot it's like a smash cut (laughs) right so like 
I, I when you use the panel by panel view, you often see the like the flow of the panels in really interesting ways. So the the framing of there's one shot of all the X Men gathered around a birthday cake, like celebrating and eating together, and then immediately the next shot is all of these the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants sitting around a dining room table, looking like miserable and surly. Uh, it and it's such it's it it's it's good editing basically. <laughs> You know, like yeah, way. no, it's good framing. It's a nice point counterpoint, I think. Yep. Um, all on the page. A lot of times now, that would come on the page turn. I think definitely. Or like they would. What's interesting is that like these two images are definitely meant to like pair together, but the actual page layout doesn't do that any favors, right? Yeah. So like the 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 X Men eating is in the middle right frame, and then the Brotherhood sitting around a table is in the bottom left frame. So, like, they're not paired visually at all. Like, it's just, it's the next frame, so your eyes move to it. But, it, you know, they're not side by side. They're not one on top of the other. Like, there's very little done to draw the comparison, which I, I think is something that we'll see, like, comics get much better at, right? Like, the I think right. it, that's one of the interesting things about this Silver Age is that, like, very few artists really use the, really use the page layout to tell stories rather than just individual frames. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and for those of you curious to look at this as we talk about it, that's page five. Okay. Yeah. So we cut to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants dining room table, and we are introduced to Toad, Mastermind, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch. Mm-hmm. So the team, and we kind of get introduced to them through their infighting. They all kind of call each other by name and use their powers. Um, Mastermind, for example, turns Toad into a pig. He makes leering, creepy comments at the Scarlet Witch. Who takes great offense at this, not as much offense as is taken by her protective brother, Quicksilver, who speeds over and punches Mastermind. And this is kind of, you know, the dysfunctional team is is having these problems when, you know, basically Toad is like, oh, Magneto's going to be mad when he shows up. You know, <laughs> boss, boss isn't going to like this. And cut to Magneto, where he uh, infiltrates another military base, takes over a freighter, and uh, has some sort of plot with this freighter that he's going to enact. Angel flies over this freighter. Uh, Professor X identifies kind of on a hunch that this might have something to do with evil mutants. (laughs) (laughs) Professor X actually says something like, Angel reports to him about this freighter, and Professor X says like, hmm, interesting. I wasn't aware of any freighter scheduled to pass through there (laughs) that time. Yeah. Like, he just has the the shipping log, like the... (laughs) The, the, uh... The freighting records, freighting records. I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say. <laughs> the, freighting records is a great guess. I, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah whatever. The, the, like the schedule for like all international travel. <laughs> like, yeah, we need to watch The Wire season two again. Be yeah. a little more familiar with the docs. Yeah, right. So Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, uh, they want out essentially, but they owe Magneto a debt. So Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, they want out, but they owe Magneto a debt. Magneto tells them, uh, tells the entire team, the Brotherhood, remember, we are homo superior. We are born to rule the Earth. And with that sort of mission statement, uh, let's actually outline the powers of this team. So Toad is this, I don't know, he's pretty tiny. He's this short guy who can just bounce around really quickly. And then his other power is being subservient. Uh, <laughs> he's I mean, very good at that. Literally, yes. they just like... I. I mean, it is, it's a little bit of a joke. It's kind of a clever joke that he is just a toady, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> he's Magneto's toady. He says, you know, we'll follow you wherever, Magneto. We respect your vision. And Magneto's like, I don't need your respect, only your fear. <laughs> Which, 
again, very different from the Magneto we will come to know. Yes. Uh, Mastermind, Mastermind doesn't look particularly interesting. He kind of just looks like kind of a schlubby, kind of greasy middle-aged man. With a, I think greasy is the operative word. Yeah, um, definitely. He's kind of a sleaze bucket, and he can create projections, um, you know, kind of uh, hallucinations so that people see what he wants them to see. Yeah, yeah which which is a pretty interesting power. It, it doesn't get used much here, but, like, he becomes kind of a big player later on, yeah, I it think. Is. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Quicksilver is fast. <laughs> he's basically the Flash. Uh, he just can move incredibly quickly. Well, the Flash minus lots of other flash powers but he's the flash with a lot of pride and attitude yeah yep definitely and scarlet witch the flash is the flash scarlet witch quicksilver's sister uh has some of the most like weirdly defined powers i think still in the marvel universe like even in the movies she just has this like at some point they're gonna call them like probability hexes it's like that she can alter alter probability with this magic to like make things go her way but then that's not really clearly outlined and it also kind of looks like she can just do like telekinesis <laughs> it's it, it often comes across as telekinesis yeah you know? that's how it, uh, I, yeah it's hard to manifest it in other ways i mean i think often it's like there's a stack of boxes of some some above someone and she makes them fall over that was yeah. unlikely but she altered the probability you know but it's also yeah. like or she just gave it a push so yeah her powers will be all over the place. Can I just time. say, yeah. Scarlet Witch is like the coolest design at this point. They have one of the, they have a like single panel shot of her reacting, I think, to Mastermind right at the beginning. That is, that's an awesome, awesome drawing. And uh, just her design and her headgear, that Jack Kirby headgear. Oh, yeah. She looks oh, yeah. really cool. And also like her facial design, like her facial features are pretty distinct. Like something Jack Kirby does is he doesn't drop people to look like particularly distinct often like their their faces like they're usually just generally handsome boys and generally pretty girls (laughs) but uh she she has kind of a a distinct has distinct facial features well i think she comes across as a little more distinct because i don't think we've seen a super villainous in costume Mm, yeah yet uh, at least in the issues we've been prioritizing. So, I mean, she stands out in that regard as well. Yeah. And yeah, I, I do really like her design. That's the team. They Magneto, with this team in tow, proceeds to use his freighter that he's captured to bomb the small island of Santa Marco. And essentially, they um, they take over kind of a government coup of <laughs> the South tiny American island, island of Santa yeah. Marco. Yeah. And, uh, and basically while, you know, once Magneto has taken over, there's kind of a cool scene where Professor X and Magneto meet on the mental plane, uh, which they have not done yet. Yeah. It's one of the earliest instances of, of what will become known as like the astral plane. Yeah. And it's also the first direct interaction between Professor X and Magneto that we see in the comics. And And it's not yet clear that they know each other. But they know what each other are about. Yeah, they don't. They don't set up particularly that like these two are even acquaintances, let alone like the the kind of weird friendship that they they have the like yeah. antagonistic type of friendship where they you know their followers are trying to kill each other, but they still always meet for Sunday chess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, right. Like that kind of that kind of thing. But it is definitely interesting that you know he can have this conversation in the way that Jack Kirby draws it that these two like ghostly figures hovering over the earth is really cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's good stuff. Um, the X-Men, uh, to, in order to 
help prevent this takeover of Santa Marco. They enter as American, an American professor and his students on a goodwill mission, yeah. which is allowed as entrance, even in the Magneto regime, because uh, he wants them to come and he, want, he thinks they'll be easily fooled into seeing that he is a benevolent dictator of the Tanya Island. So once once they've made it into Santa Marco, the X-Men see Magneto's got this castle, as all good villain leaders do. Mm-hmm. Um, he's flying a giant M flag, um, a little yeah. early, early take over there. And uh, the X-Men infiltrate the castle, and a giant full battle ensues. So we get the X-Men versus the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants mm-hmm. for the first time. Um, everyone fights, and we get to see everyone's powers having detail them already i will call out the the battle scene that i like the most which is cyclops kind of goes on a rampage and he kind of he pretty clearly is like the most effective of the x-men at this point in time Mm -hmm. um he's kind of he's got magneto quicksilver and scarlet witch all right in front of him and and two like henchmen and he uses his beams to roll the henchmen down a hallway yeah like literally they're they're rolling like they're in barrels with his (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense but it's awesome looking i, yeah. I enjoyed that one a lot it's good yeah, action it's um and then quicksilver speeds up behind him and, and does eventually stop him so the way the fight ends is the x-men are kind of all you know licking their wounds on the outside trying to get back to the brotherhood who have all gathered together in um like kind of like a mission control room in the castle and magneto comes up with this plan that uh, he's going to put a uh, trap A, basically, is a bomb to kill the X-Men if they try to get into the mission control room. Mm-hmm. And then trap B is if should they get past that, <laughs> he will nuke the entire island. Yeah, right. Yep. So pretty high stakes there. There's a really good moment where Professor X senses the, the first bomb trap. Yep. And as one of the teammates goes to open the door, he dives out of his wheelchair to to take the hit basically <laughs> yeah. and to prevent them which is a, nut, a really good visual of like how much he cares for his students yeah yeah and and he he takes the the full brunt of the bomb straight to the brain yes <laughs> uh and this is the the first of probably a few times i feel like where professor x is uh lost his mental powers like this issue ends with him having lost all all psychic abilities right Yes, right. Yeah, so he's he's pretty seriously wounded. The X-Men really aren't able to stop the Brotherhood. Um, the only reason the island doesn't get nuked is Wanda and Quicksilver do finally draw a line and say, we can't allow an entire nation to blow up on our watch. And they are actually the ones who turn on the Brotherhood here and prevent that final destruction from happening. Without Magneto's knowledge, like Quicksilver runs back, you know, super speedy. Yeah. Super speedy, disarms the bomb, and then rejoins the Brotherhood. Oh, my, yeah. so my wife read this issue alongside me with, uh, we were, you know, reading it on the TV. And uh, yeah, the, her, her like one call out was she liked, she really liked how Quicksilver is drawn in his speedy form, which I think is pretty cool. Like he just kind of appears as this like hazy figure. Right? Yeah. Like, you don't see him defined, like he's moving so fast, you can't actually like make out any details, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice Kirby touch. Um, yeah. I'd call it here too, like this story more or less continues into the pages of Uncanny X-Men number five, Okay. Uh, which I don't include on the list because it's honestly, you've already been introduced to the Brotherhood and it's, you know, it's a little more stock battle and fight. Um, so we're actually going to move next instead, jump ahead a couple issues to Uncanny X-Men number seven. Well, I, I want to call out about four. I, I think... 
I think all the fighting and the action and the actual plot of this issue is not that interesting. Um, the Santa Marco stuff is it's a little interesting whether or not you feel like it rings true, maybe. But uh, and actually, I saw that like just on Wikipedia or whatever, Santa Marco become comes back as a like <laughs> a major plot point in the coming years, which I'll be interested to see how that hat plays out. But um, I think what's I really say that's news to me. Oh, okay. I actually didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, it might not be a big a big thing, I guess. But they definitely like. I think they come back as like an anti mutant, a, a country with strong anti mutant sentiments. Which like, okay, I mean, given <laughs> given what happened here, maybe understandable. Um, but I think what's really strong about this issue is the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and like the characterization of these. I think the characterization of these five mutants is <laughs> is actually better and stronger than the X Men at this point. Right, like they hmm. each have more distinct personalities and motivations. Like Wanda and Quicksilver, they've you know they're siblings. They're watching out for each other. Ultimately, they're there because they owe Magneto a debt, not because they like have the same ideology as him. So they're like torn between what they're doing and what they feel is right. Toad, yeah. Toad is you know just licking Magneto's boots. Mastermind is there for power, but he's also obsessed with. Scarlet Witch and Magneto. Well, Magneto's Magneto. I I just think like there's there's more interesting dynamics going on there because the X Men are basically like the four boys love Jean Grey and they love doing good at this point, <laughs> and, that, and that's about as m- much as they get fleshed out at this point. They all they all become distinct and they all get their own personalities. But I think uh, yeah, I I really liked the way that all these these evil mutants were characterized. Yeah, it's a really good team unit, yep. and I I think I would agree with you because yep. the original X Men aren't they aren't even particularly well defined. And we're getting there. I think as you yeah, said, we'll bit. see a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it takes longer. And the the Brotherhood, I mean, it's pretty clear. These are the these are who these characters are going to be more or less with Wanda and Quicksilver in particular. Yeah, all five um, of them are very a distinct personalities. Versus the X Men, where like Bobby Drake is a little younger, but. He's not. He doesn't talk any differently than Scott Summers, who doesn't talk any differently than Warren Worthington. Well, Beast doesn't really. He doesn't start start talking in that. Um... Oh, let, let me let me get into it. So, Uncanny okay, X Men. That starts num- here, right? Yeah, Uncanny X Men number seven is the beginning of when Hank McCoy, the Beast, kind of starts talking like his like hyper educated Ivy League dork. Yeah. So, like, right. th- this is the issue where I, I this or maybe it was five or six, and I didn't read those, but. Uh, this is the first one I read where the Beast is starting to talk like using a lot of $10 words or at least what Stan Lee thinks are $10 words. So like, you know, he uh, after after training in the danger room, he switches back into his like civilian clothes and he says, it's a pleasure to be divested of the encumbrance of our X-Men uniforms. Like, <laughs> it is like talking to Hank at this point in his life would be the worst conversation. Oh God, insufferable! Yeah, <laughs> it's insufferably intellectual. Yeah, he would definitely be on like Reddit forums talking about how like, oh me tonight, I'm I'm just learning quantum physics, no big deal. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he would definitely brag about his IQ on forums and uh, <laughs> and talk about quantum mechanics. And it makes me know. kind of curious how how he became less annoying you know i don't it's know like, like he does keep talking like that but it doesn't come across as so obnoxious maybe it's the difference between a, a 19 year old doing it and a 27 year old with blue fur yeah and i mean he takes on the like kind of shakespearean affect a little bit too rather than just like a, a college boy showing off yeah kind of, so 
so <laughs> X-Men number seven starts out with it, it's a pretty cool page. It's a shot of all the X-Men graduating and it is like framed through the lens of a camera. Right. So you see like it's actually reflected in the lens of a camera. So you're looking at the camera that is taking a picture of all the X-Men standing together with their graduation caps on and diplomas. Uh, this is a weird, you know, we were talking about the like Marvel Universe time scale. It's very strange that it's seven issues into the X-Men and they're already like, well, they're graduated. They're done with school. <laughs> yeah. It, it kind of shows that like, you know, maybe Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, whoever else is making these decisions. I mean, clearly they couldn't have any real idea of how long these characters and stories would last right because <laughs> if they would like they would not have the x-men graduating this soon and they would not have peter parker graduating from high school as soon as he does I, i'm not sure when that is but i know it's not too much longer yeah it's showing um it's showing fast moving progress yeah. in a way that obviously they will slow tremendously once right. they realize like we're in for the long haul right 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 so uh they all graduate, they they kind of celebrate, and Xavier tells Cyclops that he, basically he has some errands to run, he, he has some tasks to take care of, and he's going to be leave, leaving them, and they need to appoint a new leader. Uh, he's going to leave them for some, it, it's really like ill-defined, like for some <laughs> non-specific amount of time, and, uh, and Cyclops kind of realizes he needs to step up to be the leader, which is a role that he will fall into for like... The foreseeable future. I do like that Professor X, as he's having this conversation about transitioning Cyclops to the leader of the team, um, that he reveals Cerebro. Yeah. Right. And this is the introduction of Cerebro. He's been keeping it a secret to this point, yep. which I kind of appreciate that he's not shown the team this, that there is sort of this hidden layer of, of what he's doing. Um, and basically Cerebro, for those who don't know, is the machine uh, it's the technology that Professor X has developed and uses to identify uh, basically any mutants in the world. And he's able to connect that and track them down. This is a little bit of a retcon, and they will they will continue to retcon this. Because he actually says that, like, no, this is not to help him find mutants. His brain is already powerful enough for that. He, he says this is not, like, it, they don't point out that this is to amplify his power. Yeah. He says that this is so that other people can use the same thing. Because so far he's been tracking mutants just using his mind. And like, He's basically like, this is something that Scott could use. Right, as exactly. And I, I think that kind of gets changed over time to become like, this is the tool he needs to use for like worldwide searches. Yeah. Um, and, and I will say too, like Scott, he isn't born to be a leader. Like he he's skeptical yeah. of being the team leader. I think it's not clear, you know, and if you've been reading these issues too, like Angel's the more confident of probably the, the male characters at this point. Mm -hmm. um, he's kind of the cool, confident, you know, rich kid. And uh, Cyclops is more unsure. So making a leader here isn't necessarily a given, even though it certainly seems that way with hindsight. Sure. So all the X-Men get together to go go out for a night on the town. Uh, but, but Scott says that he needs to stay behind and, I don't know, do some work, do some leader work. <laughs> Basically, like, he kind of sulks behind. He's, like, sitting behind a desk. Like, all the X-Men are trying to get him to come out with them. And he's just, like, yeah. sulking behind a desk. No, I've got serious things to do. Oh, no, he just he's just being left in charge of the mansion while everyone else leaves because Xavier's gone. This cuts to Magneto is walking through a circus. <laughs> he's walking through a circus in his full outfit, like helmet and cape. And he mentions something like, you know, here at the circus, I don't even need to like take off my costume. I blend right in. He goes up to the blob 
who is this mutant that was introduced in a past X-Men I talked about on Extra Issues, but you basically get the, the gist of what he's about here. Um, in a past issue, the blob was shown to be, he's this, he's this big guy, kind of just reads as the, like an obese man with, uh, he's basically immovable. <laughs> Once he plants his feet, like you can't like move him, you can't budge him. And also his, his flesh is like impervious, right? So he can take a bullet, he can take a cannonball to the gut, like, um, yeah, he starts out as as very very powerful. The X Men have yeah. a lot of problems and trouble with him. I think it's in Uncanny number three. Um, yeah, honestly, he would make like the world's best offensive lineman. Like, right. I don't know yeah. why I mean, he's in a fair, yeah. not on a football team, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's unmovable and quite powerful. And when we find him here with Magneto looking to recruit him to the Brotherhood, uh, his memory is a little wiped <laughs> from yeah, his encounter right, yeah. with Professor X. Yeah, Xavier had yeah Xavier had wiped his mind. Magneto like kind of refreshes him that he's a mutant <laughs> and uh and he gets his memory back and he remembers that you know xavier and the x-men wiped his memory so he decides to get his revenge and join up with the brotherhood of evil mutants there's, there's a really funny shot of uh <laughs> of scott summers back at the x-mansion looking at a switchboard that has that a switchboard with the label known hostile mutants yeah <laughs> and there's like there's little lights next to a bunch of names like Magneto, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, The Blob. And The Blob's lights up because, I don't know, he regained his memories. He's on the move. Yeah, Somehow. He, yeah, right, yeah. This cuts to the X-Men. The X-Men are at a cafe. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the X-Men I like so this far. page a lot, yeah. Yeah, they're all at this, like, coffee shop, which was very, like, hip at the time, right? Like, going to drink coffee is a very, like, bohemian thing in 1963. They're like they're listening to some like beat poetry, uh, and yeah, one of them says something like, "Oh, this is poetry." I thought he was just reading uh, his wife's grocery list, and uh, I think I think it might be Gene is like he is. That's what makes him so genius. <laughs> yeah, is... it's actually the girl that um, Bobby and Hank are out on a date with. It's oh, not right. Jean. Yeah, I don't okay. Think. Um, yeah, Lincoln on her name. I Zelda. want to say Doris, but that might just be my catch-all. Zelda. Zelda is is the girl that Bobby oh, Drake is better. interested in. Yeah, yeah. even better. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it's funny. Like they have a bunch of funny little moments here of like, like all these beatniks. Like Hank McCoy takes his shoes off, <laughs> and he has these enormous gorilla feet. And like all these beatniks are like weirdly obsessed with his feet <laughs> and want to like write poetry about it. it yeah, it's this funny thing of like kind of poking fun at the uh at this like this subculture at the time that reads it's lee and kirby kind of skewering hipster culture yeah i I really enjoy it it's fun and it's not it's kind of playful it's not like actually like hostile yeah it's playful it's kind of fun it also reads as a little bit of like someone who has no real familiarity with that culture like (laughs) poking fun at it but, yeah, uh, I don't know that like that either of them would be actually in these bohemian cafes. Certainly, they would be aware enough of them yeah, to yeah. to write something like yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not exactly cutting satire, but it, it is pretty fun and it's funny. So the the X Men get called by Scott to face off against Magneto, who is like calling out the X Men. The X Men all get in a helicopter, which apparently they own, and as no they Blackbird f- yet. Yeah, they, yeah, as they fly up to Magneto, of course, Magneto just rips the helicopter to shreds. <laughs> 
This must be at a military base because at some point Magneto gets a hold of some torpedoes. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember the specifics, but there's a big fight between the Brotherhood and X-Men. They're having a really hard time with the blob moving him, basically. Um, at one point, Magneto takes some torpedoes and wings them at the X-Men, even though the blob is in the midst of them fighting. So yeah. he, you know, clearly doesn't care. The, the blob takes the full brunt of the, the explosion, uh, doesn't really damage him too much but makes him a little mad so he quits the brotherhood of evil mutants and uh basically the the rest of the brotherhood flees leaving the x-men well (laughs) wondering why all that happened Uh, (laughs) yeah more or less yeah the blob kind of goes to walk his own path i mean this one really it's kind of a rehash of like uncanny number one except this time magneto's got a team right yeah yeah very much It's, Um, it's worth noting like scott summers for some reason notes that uh he thinks that Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are not not quite as evil as the rest of them. Like, maybe right. there's some good in them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think all things considered, like, it's a good look into the state of the X-Men for the year as we approach, you know, the hidden, like, ten issues. I, again, X-Men, there's good ideas, there's good characters. It's not one of Marvel's finest at this point. Yeah. In yeah, surprisingly. What is one of Marvel's finest is Journey into Mystery. And specifically 108. Yeah, Journey into Mystery is really good. Yeah. Um, and this is Lee and Kirby again. It's getting really good right now. Like 64 is when I think like the the flip switches and this turns into like an excellent comic. Yeah. And I do like, so the cover here announces Thor's the handsomest, most noble superhero of all time. <laughs> I mean, they're not wrong. I like <laughs> quite appreciate it. I actually, I asked my wife, I'm like, who, you, who would you say is the handsomest? mcu character and she said thor no question oh yeah and then no, there's my, some shade of captain america that i was not having but <laughs> my my wife for 100 percent the same <laughs> she's been she's been watching the the poll the uh the 1961 62 poll about like who's gonna win thor spider-man in that those are the two front runners right now she's been watching yeah. that like a hawk because she's she's big on thor maybe we maybe we should have done handsomest for a poll. We'll, we'll keep that in our back <laughs> yeah let's definitely maybe. do that some point. <laughs> um so yeah this is stanley jack kirby with inks by chick stone and letters by art Semek. uh the opening scene is is pretty fun uh basically thor comes out of the sky and he slams his hammer to the ground and the people are screaming and it looks like thor has turned turned against them um but essentially what he's doing is preventing a truck from hitting a kid in the street blocks and blocks away by slamming his hammer into the ground and creating like an like mini earthquake so yeah. that the truck will not hit this child that he couldn't quite fly to in time. What's the cost of some pavement versus versus a human life? Yeah, and probably the city of New York is like, well, here's your bill. <laughs> but <laughs> but he saves the kid, which is great. Um so this one it's a it's a fun cameo story, uh Journey to Mystery number 108 because we then cut to Doctor Strange sends a mental summons to a patrolling Thor. And Thor is unfamiliar with Strange at this point in time, Mm -hmm. but he flies and follows the summons and he finds in the Sanctum Sanctorum of Doctor Strange, he finds a weakened Stephen Strange from his, from a battle with Baron Mordo. So Strange is kind of just lying there, barely, you know, on the, on the brink of collapse. And he just stopped Mordo from one of his evil schemes. Um, So Thor rushes Strange into surgery, which he performs then in his human guise as Don Blake. Uh, and as he's doing surgery on Stephen Trange and trying to bring him back uh, to life, Odin calls. And uh, and Odin is Thor's father up in Asgard. And he essentially says, you know, my son, I need you for battle. And Thor is, you know, as Don Blake, he's he's busy. He's trying to save Stephen Strange's life. Uh, I don't 
he may not actually hear the call, I think, because he's so... No, he says, he's, he hears it and he says, you know, I'm too busy. Like, I, right. I can't okay. stop him in the middle of surgery. Yep. Um, I will call out, too, Odin has two eyes yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, The old classic Odin one-eye, he is not yet wearing the patch. This so. is like when, when all of Stanley's classic one-eyed characters, Nick Fury and Odin, uh, they all start out with two eyes and... Patches don't make an appearance until yeah. a few a few appearances in for most of these. Yeah. So Odin Odin's call is ignored, and he like he just loses it. <laughs> like he yeah, just throws right. the biggest tantrum about like you know I called my son and he doesn't pick up the phone. I have no son. <laughs> like <laughs> he like immediately like one ignored text message, and he just you know like <laughs> he really needs to work on his self esteem. It's pretty great, and it's actually like really good, consistent Odin characterization of just him flying off the handle if he doesn't get what he wants. Yeah, and it's you know it's again like he's the ruler, he's the king, he is the the all powerful god of Asgard, and mm-hmm. yeah, man, you say no to Odin. Oh boy, oh boy, get ready for a tantrum. Yep. Uh, so while this is happening and Odin takes his force, his troops into battle, uh, Loki views that as an opportunity. Odin's distracted. He's going to go to Earth and mess with Thor. So he pretends to be an old man with a cane uh, no, in wait, the offices wait. of Don Blake. You have to talk about how Loki sneaks out of Asgard. Do you uh, remember? I, I don't remember. Okay. Can you, um, can you so, start it? So Loki, Loki decides to go to Earth and... He turns himself into a bee to sneak by Heimdall, and that's it. Like he literally passes within a foot of Heimdall, yeah. <laughs> guarding the rainbow rainbow bridge, and just buzzes by him. So, like, what's really the point of Heimdall? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So once on Earth, he goes to the offices of Don Blake, and he pretends to be an old man with a cane. Um, he kind of, you know, he falls and asks, so acts super frail when Blake appears. And he kind of in the confusion of Blake trying to help him, he switches their canes. And of course, we know that Don Blake's cane is what he slams into the ground. Yeah, to you turn think into he'd be a little Thor's more hammer. careful, like and and just familiar Loki. with what it looked like. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you'd think it would feel a little different. I, but Loki doesn't do anything with the cane, like really nasty. He just throws it out the window. <laughs> he just chucks it, which does. I actually thought raised some like metaphysical challenges, which that like so anyone can lift the cane. Yeah, right. But they can't that. lift it when it's a hammer, yeah. which I thought was kind of I, – I, that confused me a little. I mean, I, I, like, sure. I like that, that. You know, there's kind of a yeah. weakness built into it. Yeah, okay. So Loki chucks the cane out the window. Um, he then kidnaps Jane Foster, and, and he reveals himself as Loki at this point. He kidnaps Jane Foster, and Don Blake can't find his cane. And, and he's got to go to back to Doctor Strange, who, you know, he had saved his life earlier in the issue, and – when, when that happened, Strange said, you know, call on me if you need help. Probably mm-hmm. not expecting it to happen, the same issue. But uh, but Strange helps Blake recover uh, the cane pretty quickly. He flies out in his astral form. He finds some um, kind of like, I don't know, like vagrants out in the city. They're <laughs> using it as a fishing rod. Yeah, right. <laughs> which yeah. is pretty great. Yeah, it's the only stick in New York City. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, so he gets the cane back and and Blake is able to turn into Thor. At which point, like, Thor calls out for Odin to help him. Yes. (laughs) To help him, like, stop Loki. And Odin, I think Odin is just busy, right? Or does Odin Odin ignore him? Petty. I I think he's in battle, though, I think. One reason or another, Odin ignores Thor. Uh, And then Thor (laughs) just throws a tantrum himself and is like, I call my dad and he doesn't pick up the phone. I have no father. (laughs) Yeah. 
yeah. Like, what he, we got he, here he, is a failure to communicate <laughs> between father and son. Yeah, God, they really have to work on their communication. So, uh, so Thor is on his way to find Loki, kind of mad at his dad, and he runs into the Avengers, um, who make a Beatles reference. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. You know, he says, I think he says something like, "Oh, it's the Avengers," and Hank or Janet says, "Well, who'd you expect, the Beatles?" Yeah. Um, which this is 1964 is the first year the Beatles would have appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. I yeah. think so they're really starting to, to also take off one of the America. rare cultural references I get. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so he, the Avengers offer to help Thor says, no, I must face Loki alone. Just, you know, <laughs> no, this is journey into mystery, not Avengers. No, thanks, guys. <laughs> right. Um, so Loki has imprisoned Jane Foster in limbo, which, uh, if you, if you had read, there's an earlier journey into mystery from this year. She was also trapped in limbo by a different Asgardian earlier this year. So this is her second time in limbo in less than a year. Like, poor Jane Foster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's really getting uh, getting, <laughs> getting mistreated. I mean, sh- she should start putting together that, like, there's something going on. Like, a normal person doesn't keep getting thrown into limbo by Asgardians. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Doctor Strange is actually, so he continues to help here. He actually protects Jane uh, in limbo. So yep. She's on another dimension, kind of protects her from afar. Um, as he's doing this, there's a Thor versus Loki fight, um, which is not necessarily one of my favorites nah, um, yeah. of their battles, but they fight. Loki's captured. There's a really good moment in this fight <laughs> I, okay. I wanted to mention, which is that at one point, Loki just like knocks Thor off balance. Yeah. And Thor, like as he's falling backwards, thinks like a trap or something like, oh, like knocking me over. That's so simple. <laughs> Loki says, quote, not as simple as you think, Thunder God. Because then Thor just falls into a hole that was covered with sticks and leaves. <laughs> Loki literally just has like a pit in the ground that he yeah. covered up with sticks and leaves that Thor falls into. And it becomes kind of an issue for him to get out. Like there's a few panels of him struggling to just get out of like a, a 10 foot hole in the ground. He's like, I can't yeah. spin my hammer to fly up out. There's not enough room. Like the walls are slick. Like I'm having a hard time here. <laughs> you knew a classic pit in the ground was the the secret to trapping Thor. Yeah. So once once Thor does defeat him, he's captured and sent back to Asgard. And that is more or less how Journey into Mystery ends before we move to the backup, Tales of Asgard, which we have not talked about to date. Um, these are really fun, like four or five page short backup stories that Stanley and Jack Kirby do that sort of detail the um, the mythology and the world building of Asgard. And they're really fun and really worth reading. This one is called Trapped by the Trolls, and it's a young Thor story. Yeah. So basically, um, young Thor, and we don't necessarily realize it's him until a few pages in, but he infiltrates what is essentially a troll labor camp. Yep. The uh, villainous trolls here are using as guardians for forced labor, and young Thor is intentionally captured so that he can get in and then free his Asgardians. So it's a it's a short and sweet little tale, but I really like what these tales do yeah, in terms of yeah. like building Asgard into a fully fleshed out world. It's re- they're really cool. Like actually, you know what? This one is not one of my favorites, but yeah. generally these are pretty awesome. And they do a good job of like um not just, you know, interpreting Norse mythology through the like lens of Marvel Comics, which is some of these stories, but some of them are like the origins for other characters that are kind of secondary. So like uh this year Tales of Asgard's Tales of Asgard includes the origin stories of Heimdall, the Faithful, and Baldur the Brave, both of which who become, uh, you know, big cast members in the the Thor pantheon. Right, and it gives them the the chance to like actually give those characters some depth in a way yeah. that they don't necessarily have space for in Journey into Mystery. Yeah, they're really cool. So next, we read two Daredevils, number one and number four. 
number one, <laughs> Daredevil number one is kind of interesting. The cover has both Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four on it to just kind of show off their bona fides. Like, hey, you love these comics. Like, maybe you'll be fooled into thinking it like it kind of reminds me of like, <laughs> uh, like at Walmart, you'll see those DVDs that like have vaguely Transformer-ish robots on them. Yeah. And, you know, the title of the movie is The Transformings, right? Like, and it's just for like, uh, yeah. you know your grandmother knows you love transformers and she's gonna go <laughs> pick you up this and she doesn't know any better so like right there's also an interesting element of them hyping daredevil number one as a collector's item you yeah, know that, like that's oh did you miss out on amazing fa- on amazing spider-man number one you know and, and don't you feel guilty about that here's your chance to get this number one issue which is which is interesting to me because like speculative comics collecting i don't think is really a that big at this point yeah yeah um, but it's so. an interesting way of framing it yeah 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 they they're really self-congratulatory on this too they actually they'll they say like you already own amazing spider-man number one which of course you'd never get rid of and this is just as good and worthwhile uh the other thing that stands out to me reading this immediately is that uh the artist here is bill everett yeah big difference in the drawing style compared to like almost everyone else we've seen um there have been a couple other cool artists that i've talked about on extra issues but like most of them don't stick around very long like carl burgos love love that stuff well and you i you and i have talked about everett um as one of the uh one of the creators in the golden age of marvel oh, where did we? he oh. actually did uh the creation of name one of the submariner oh in the golden in- age. interesting okay yeah, yeah. I, I didn't put that together but i i really love his style and you know it does it does kind of look it's um it's really suited to daredevil in like uh-huh. this this topic like it's it's kind of grittier it's it's a little uh i don't know it's a little grainier it's it's uglier it looks kind of dirty i mean for hell's kitchen right like it just kind of adds this this um little this grime layer of grime over everything yeah it's really good um yeah no it is and it, i also think daredevil has like one of the most jarringly different costumes you know so like he's not in his red uniform yet it's yeah. this like primarily yellow and and black and red costume but like it is it's such a bright outfit <laughs> i don't i you don't know? think this is just because i know what his costume becomes and i like it better but i don't think it actually looks good at this point i don't think the yellow costume i think the yellow is like a strange choice and doesn't actually pair well with the red of his costume it's not the worst it's just like i think it's just the, the color palette is a little odd i do like the idea though that matt murdoch's color scheming would just be like <laughs> yeah like whatever he had on hand why would he care you know that's a good i mean that's a good point but they do actually point out when he's sewing his costume he says that i can distinguish colors just by the feel of the fabric so yeah um anyway so this starts out with these uh a bunch of like ugly mugs or sitting around a card table playing cards and the daredevil bursts in and starts beating them up looking for a man named the fixer we get a flashback to the 1950s where Madeline Jack Murdoch is this middle-aged guy lecturing his 10-year-old son, Matt Murdoch, about how he needs to like buckle down and study hard so that he won't grow up to be a, a, a rundown boxer like his old man. <laughs> Matt Murdoch grows up, you know, n- not being able to play football or <laughs> there's a sh- shot of him looking out the window uh, at a bunch of kids saying like, and he's like, I wish I could be down there Indian wrestling. Um, but he's yeah, too, it's basically like he just can't play. He, he's you know, he's too he's busy. Got to be studying. Yeah, he's too busy studying to Indian wrestle. He gets teased by other kids for being so studious and called daredevil, which like barely makes sense as an insult. Like 
hey, you don't take any risks at all, Daredevil. I guess is the <laughs> the implication. It's ironic, ironically insulting. Yeah, yeah but it, it's kind of a. You, I mean, you shouldn't have to meet someone halfway for the insult that they call you, <laughs> right? Like, it should. Uh, yeah, you shouldn't have to think about it. Yeah. Um, anyway, he uh, he takes this to heart, and as a teenage boy, starts secretly training his body. There's a fun little like montage of he does squats and he does push-ups and he does bent barbell rows. So, uh, cut to battling Jack Murdoch. He's kind of too old to be a competitive boxer anymore, so he signs this contract with the Fixer, this uh, I don't know, generic criminal mafia guy, um, to to fix some fights so that he can put Matt through college. Matt Murdoch is walking down the street, and he sees this blind man cr- crossing the street, in, walking in front of a truck that's loaded with like radioactive chemicals. Uh, Matt leaps in front of it and saves him. Because of this, the truck crashes and he is splashed with radioactive chemicals. What kind of surprised me about this is that it felt like they were afraid to actually show him get hit by the truck or splashed with the chemicals because, like, it's a yeah. shot of Matt leaping in front of the truck. It's not quite clear that it hits him. And then the next panel is him in a hospital bed with his, like, entire face wrapped in bandages. And they're, like, explaining what happened. I do think, too, like, so Matt comes, when he comes to the hospital bed, he's, like, disturbingly cheery. Like, he's in a really good mood. Yeah, um, okay. In a way that is odd to me because, like, he's blind right. now. Yeah, he's blind and then, like, yeah, you're right because it's, like, a panel later he discovers that his other senses are heightened way more than <laughs> uh, way more than just to compensate. Like, they're all way overcompensating for his blindness. So, you know, he can he can hear someone's heartbeat. He can, he, he can smell, I don't know, a, a single molecule of cologne a mile away whatever like he's just yeah. all, all of his other senses are jacked to 11 he he continues he you know kind of recovers he goes to college his roommate in college is franklin foggy nelson i don't quite know what foggy is as a nickname so he's got his head clouded yeah all the I, th- time. I mean that's kind of what i thought but that's not really how he's characterized right he's kind of a go-getter right like it's just jovial <laughs> yeah 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 anyway uh the two of them are in college and they decide to go to one of matt's father's boxing matches jack murdoch sees that his son is in the crowd and this is a fight that he's supposed to throw the fixer is set up that he's going to throw this fight he decides that he's going to make his son proud and win the fight instead and he does handily he beats the other guy and then as he leaves he's like in an alley out back the fixer sends uh the fixer sends a hitman to kill him because he didn't throw the fight like he was supposed to yeah it's a wild page because in a single page Battle and Jack Murdoch is killed. Matt graduates college, and Nelson and Murdoch and Law starts, and Karen Page joins them. That's one page. Yeah, of story. There is so much plot in this, <laughs> this issue. You're right. I, just as a side note, I, I feel like I would rather have a dad who like loses the occasional boxing match, which is something to be expected, right? Like, if you're a boxer, like you're gonna lose sometimes. I'd rather have yeah. a dad who loses a boxing match than no dad at all. So just <laughs> you know, they actually they actually call that. I think that line might be. Have you seen Daredevil season three? No, I, I watched half that of season one. Is almost used verbatim oh, as cool. Matt sort okay. of struggles well, with. I shows with that I can write done. that show just as good as that show is. Yeah, Daredevil season three is is real good. Oh man, we we shouldn't argue about that. I don't like that show at all. <laughs> all right, we can talk about that on, on another extra issues or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh let's see oh yeah so karen <laughs> jack murdoch is killed 
Nelson, Foggy Nelson and Matt Murdock graduate college, start a law firm with Nelson's father's money, which is very yeah. funny. They're, he says like he says something like to Matt, with your brains and my dad's money, we'll do great. Yeah, it's dishonest. Um, they hire Karen Page, who they both immediately fall in love with, which is like, how did these men get by walking around the world? Like, it's just like she she hasn't even said a word yet. And they're just like enamored with her. Her hair is also like twice the size of her face. <laughs> like her hair is really ridiculous. She has this enormous hairdo. Um, oh boy! All right, I'm gonna go through this. There's still there's still a bunch left. Matt Murdock decides that he's going to, with his heightened powers, he can fight crime. Uh, he wants to get back at the fixer for killing his father. He creates this costume and he creates this hinged cane to help him fight, kind of like a billy club. He goes to beat up the fixer and yeah. his men which is how this issue started. <laughs> as soon as he leaves, there, there's a bunch of like, the way that they talk about blind people is a little bit of a bummer because like Foggy and Karen both frame him as like something to be pitied a little bit. So like a little bit, Ka Karen says, what a pity such a wonderful, handsome man is so handicapped, <laughs> which like, yeah, I guess like, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. bit condescending. Yeah, in, exactly. In ways that that, aren't that's the perfect word for it. Particularly likable. Yes. Daredevil goes, chases the fixer. He starts beating up on him. He chases him down to the subway. And uh, at the last minute, like as he's approaching the fixer, the fixer has a heart attack and dies on the spot. And the hitman, Slade, the Daredevil, uh, Daredevil intimidates into confessing just in earshot of a couple cops who arrest him and take him away. Which it's not really quite how legal confessions work, but you know. This is a pretty common <laughs> Marvel trope, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so that is the Daredevil origin. Um, the next most interesting Daredevil story that we're going to finish the 64 Rex with is Daredevil number four. And this is a story by Stan Lee, art by Joe Orlando, got inks by Vince Coletta, and letters by Sam Rosen. I really liked Joe Orlando's art here. Like, again... Yeah, I was going to say, you get... Daredevil gives you a little showcase of uh, of some new blood in the Marvel, in the Marvel talent pool. J Joe Orlando actually, like does one more issue of daredevil and then never does any marvel again so it fluctuates quickly because it won't be long before we get to wally wood yeah okay yeah he he really focuses on faces he has like some of these shots are almost they almost look rotoscoped like he does this kind of photorealistic mm. style that's very different like his shots of the purple man who we're gonna see he has these close-up shots of the purple man's face and they're really effective like they really do a lot of the heavy lifting of characterizing this guy yeah and i think that works for this character in particular um so it's, it's a yeah. good fit it, it, it feels it feels way ahead of its time as far as the art goes this issue opens with the purple man uh very casually robbing a bank he uh you know basically walks up to the teller and says give me your dough yep and obviously him being the purple man, his power is, you know, essentially persuasion and mm -hmm. controlling um, people's willpower. And uh, so he gets the money, he walks out, and basically as he's walking out and his power starts to dwindle, the teller's like, what did I just do? I just gave that man some money, mm -hmm. calls the police on him. And the purple man, uh, you know, within the first couple pages allows himself to be arrested and taken to court, um, which is kind of interesting, like why he would do that when he could just as easily tell the police to let him go. So Matt Murdock, we go to the offices of Murdock and Nelson. He's appointed as Kilgrave's attorney. Mm -hmm. He goes down to the courthouse with Karen Page. Oh, yeah. Kilgrave is his name. Yeah. Uh, his, his last name is Kilgrave. He, they kind of alternate here actually between, um, I think even the title card calls out like the purple man Kilgrave or something mm, like that. Yeah. Like I, I always thought, I always think of him as the purple man. Um, if you've seen like Netflix, Jessica Jones, they kind of just call him Kilgrave yeah. more often than not. Um, but both, both are comics accurate. So, that is his name. 
So Matt goes to see the Purple Man, um, and as they go to his cell to tell him that they're going to be representing him, um, Purple Man gives orders to the security guard to free him and for Karen to come along as his secretary, and obviously they're helpless but to um, but to go along with what he says. Daredevil, on the meantime, is like not totally taken over by his power, but clearly confused and flummoxed to the point of doing nothing. And, and the rest of this issue... Uh, I mean, we we can kind of sum this up in that Kilgrave is kind of setting himself up in a penthouse and like just using armies of people to fight yeah. off Daredevil. So like he gets a crowd to turn against Daredevil just by suggesting that, you know, he, he's a villain who needs to be stopped. He goes to a gym, I think, at one point and like recruits a bunch of beef boys to like be yeah. his personal army, which I think is very funny. I, eventually, Daredevil defeats him by just throwing a bag over him, <laughs> which like apparently immediately halts his uh his mind influencing powers yeah we get at one point so before daredevil captures him with the sort of plastic coat that he throws over him mm-hmm. the blanket um there a purple man has ordered karen page to jump off a building basically and he uses this to threaten daredevil yeah. before you know so daredevil can't apprehend him and uh and as he's doing this you know daredevil he's holding daredevil at gunpoint simultaneously and he's like oh, i've got you where i want you i'll tell you my origin while i'm at it <laughs> yeah right and uh he explains that he was a communist spy mm-hmm. who was exposed to a purple nerve gas and that's essentially so that's what turns the skin purple but it's also just like basically the the inability to control your will is just emanating off of his skin right so daredevil and hearing this origin he wraps him in a plastic sheet which prevents his emanations from affecting anyone else. And he is then carted off to prison. So Purple Man's debut, I think, is is pretty effective. I think he's one of the more um, instantly sort of successful villains yeah. in the Marvel Universe. I, I think the art has a lot to do with that, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think like I think if this was uh, drawn by a lesser artist, if they like the way that he was shown, like ju- just his like... His facial expressions are so, like, flat and creepy in this. I think that does a lot of it. I think, yeah, you're right. Like, he's immediately a really good villain. But I actually think that, like, what he does here is pretty stupid. Like, I yeah. I, I got wishing, and I, I don't know more about him. I know he's in Jessica Jones. I haven't watched that. But um, I just immediately got the feeling of, like, wow, like, this guy's powers could be used, like, so much more insidiously. Right. Yeah. Then like and then instead of just like convincing a bunch of muscle men to to be an army, just the way that he could infiltrate governments, like rise to power, like get power in a real way without anyone ever knowing that he was doing it. Right. Just like through subtle influence. I am curious and hopeful that someone like takes this and runs with it in some interesting ways. Yeah, he'll get he'll get explored a lot more interestingly. It's funny you say that. Uh, I just read a series of novels that are edited by George R. R. Martin called Wild Cards. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if you're yeah. Familiar. Yeah, I'm familiar. Um, but there's a character in there who is kind of what you just described, like Purple Man, but political. I mean, basically, like, I just want him to be Lex Luthor, but Lex Luthor with the ability to influence people's minds. That would be so much cooler, like, if, you know. Yeah, it takes a while. Um, yeah. It takes a while for that. Yeah, sure. For that bent to start getting there. But yeah, so that is, that's going to do it for this first half of 1964. Um, when we move into the second half, we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of Fantastic Four, Strange Tales, Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, if I'm being honest, most of the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it because this 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 first half was a real like mixed bag to weak bag. If that <laughs> weak bag, it doesn't matter. Oh, a weak bag. It was it was yeah. a real weak bag for me. So yeah, because I, <laughs> I I I think like I kind of liked 
the X-Men, and I kind of like Journey into Mystery, and I like this Daredevil issue. But that's it. Like, the rest I thought were pretty meh. So I'm, I'm looking forward yeah. to get back into Spidey and Fantastic Four territory where I know I'm, where I know I'm happy. Yeah. Uh, so part two of 1964 will be out on February 18th. If you want your thoughts to be read out loud on the 1964 listener response episode, send them in by February 19th. Uh, we also are putting up a poll today for this. Uh, we, for 1964, we are asking you, what is the most dangerous science in the Marvel Universe? Yeah, I, I think, you know, kind of what we're looking for here is like, there's a lot of good comic book science going on in the yeah. early stages here. Yeah. So we're looking for your take on what is the one that gets like exploited and overpowered and just used weirdly or delightfully yep. the most frequently. So, uh, so the options are magnets, rays, and that could be ion, gamma, cosmic rays, etc. Nuclear power, which also includes all the various forms of radiation. Uh, Johnny Storm's flame, or just flames in general, but his flame powers are bonkers or glue <laughs> there's a lot of glue in these early years um paste pot pete adhesive x etc yeah definitely so what, what what do you think is the most dangerous science in the marvel universe yeah we look forward to your feedback there uh, again those of you who uh, are looking to contribute to that poll can find us on patreon.com slash my marvelous year That's where right. you can also find um you know ways to support the show which we greatly appreciate and also just ways to be involved more in the community and uh, the My Marvelous readers, as well as the Slack channel, which is, again, something I'm really excited about. Uh, we've got an Instagram account and Twitter. If you want to follow us on Instagram.com slash My Marvelous Year or Twitter at My Marvelous Year, you can follow along with uh, some of the panels we'll be sharing out as some of our favorites from each year as we read. Yep. And uh, you can email us uh, feedback or your listener response to MyMarvelousYear at gmail.com. Uh, also, if you back us on Patreon at the $5 level, that's where uh, I do the extra issues bonus show. For 1964, I think I covered about 15 side issues. Some some pretty fun ones in there, as well as like the introduction of some characters and some villains who will be around for quite a while. So their first issues I cover there. Yeah, and for next episode's readings, uh, you can find them in the show notes. When we release the post, you can find them via Patreon. Or if you go to Comic Book Herald, uh, you can go to MyMarvelousYear.com. And that will redirect you to the Comic Book Herald page where you can find the lists of every year's reading yep. that we recommend. And again, for, for those of you playing along at home, we recommend using Marvel Unlimited as the most cost-effective uh, way to get at all of these comics. That's right. Our theme music is by Disasterpiece. Go check him out on Bandcamp. A lot of really fun stuff. Uh, I'd recommend his soundtrack for Fez. It's a pretty fun chiptune album. So that's all, and we will see you next year. See you next year. See you next year.